Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian Visual Arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from stolen land and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, I also pay respects to all First Nations peoples listening to this podcast. My name is Penelope Benton. I am the General Manager of the National Association for the Visual Arts and I'm here with Councillor Jess Scully. Hi, Penelope. Hi, Jess. Councillor Scully was elected to the City of Sydney Council in September 2016 as part of the Clovermore Independent Team. And just late last year, you were elected as Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. So, Councillor, let's start with an intro about you and um, your background in the arts as a curator. Yeah, sure. So I'm really happy that we're having this conversation yeah. because like, we definitely need more creative people in politics and in government and everywhere, of course, on boards, you name it. My background is a bit of a varied one. Um, I studied journalism and law and actually thought I would be a political journalist. And then I was seduced by creativity and I ended up editing magazines for years, maybe like seven or eight years. I was a, um, I edited magazines that were about design and fashion and music, always about this emerging, emerging talent, basically. Uh, and then eventually along the way, I realized that the sorts of challenges that um, creative people across lots of dis different disciplines were experiencing were, they, they had common roots. There were challenges around, um, you know, how do you build an audience? How do you, um, you know, develop your own skills and, and a market? Uh, there were challenges that were coming with technological disruption mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, how, how you can make a living out of things that were increasingly where the, the, the work and the, the value of the work and the return on the work were being just separated from each other. And that's something that's obviously ongoing. And so I realized that was called the creative industries. I um, started doing projects that were about supporting and developing creatives in the creative industry. So I helped run an, a project called the Qantas Spirit of Youth Awards, which was a mentorship and grants program for, run by Qantas for, I think I did that for like six years in amongst everything else. Eventually I ended up running a festival, which was called Vivid Ideas. It's still going on. And I helped start that as part of Vivid Sydney. And then I just, you know what it's like when you're a freelancer, you do 10 jobs at once. Yep. And so I ended up curating public art projects and festivals and conferences and you name it. But yep. everything was always around the theme of or around the intention of, of shepherding in the new economy. And for me, that is 
acknowledging that actually Australia's greatest resource is the creativity and talent, the imagination and the global connectedness of our people. It's not the stuff we dig out of the ground. And it's so short-sighted and it's so down on ourselves to think that the most valuable thing we have is a bunch of dinosaurs that are buried underground. You know, actually what we should be exporting is our talent. Mm. And so all the work. so much of it. So much of it. And, you know, so that's my sort of creative industries background and Mm. everything I've done is around advocacy, support and connecting all of the different kinds of creative practitioners that that I've been able to encounter and engage with. Wow. And so you were also Arts Policy Advisor to the New South Wales Ministry for the Arts. How did that come about? (laughs) So, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that happened where I was at dinner one night. This was an opportunity that came up through Vivid quite early on in Vivid, actually, I think it was in 2010. Mm. And um, I was seated at this dinner next to the Minister for the Arts. And like, I had a few opinions in her general direction. And this was Virginia Judge at the time, it was the Labor government. And she turned to me and said, at the end of the night, you know, Mm. you've got some good ideas. What are you doing tomorrow? Amazing. And I was like, wow, I don't know, probably having a hangover. And she said, (laughs) "Um, well, why don't you come to Arts New South Wales, as it was at the time, at 10 a.m. And I showed up and she had invited me to this meeting with all of these arts organisations. And she said, I walked in, all these arts orgs were there. And she said, this is Jess. She's got some good ideas. There you go. You've got the floor. And I had no idea what was going on. And then that happened a few more times. Eventually I said, what's going, what are we doing here? And she offered me an opportunity to be her policy advisor and with, with another great guy called Nick Picard. And, and yeah, look, it was a short, it was a short time. We mm. knew that that government was about to get really booted out of office, mm. but it was fascinating for me to see what it was like on the inside and to understand how governments feel pressure mm. and what sort of works to influence them and what they're really listening to. And, and it really made me realise why some people like Alan Jones or the Daily Telegraph or whatever, how they have such an outsized influence on our government. Yeah. It's not that more, not that a lot of people are reading these things or listening to these things, but those people in those offices are getting constant updates about Mm. what they're saying Mm. and that allows them to set the agenda. So it was quite fascinating to see it from that side and also to see which sectors were good at advocacy and lobbying and which ones were not and the kinds of messages that were getting through to politicians as well Mm. was fascinating. Amazing. Mm. And also what a great story for the opportunities that come out of dinners and and sweet I didn't want to go to that dinner and you know and sometimes you're like oh you know I'll just be polite and I won't I won't let loose sometimes it's good to let let loose loose. so how did you come to be a counsellor well look I love cities yeah I think that they're just fascinating Mm -hmm. you know a guy called Edward Glazier calls a city an engine of opportunity and that's what a city can be I think you know people are drawn to cities because they're places where we learn from each other we find our tribes you know we're able to be a little bit anonymous but also find ourselves and you know they're this great attracting force and they have the opportunity to be places of inclusion but what I've kind of you know in my life I realized that 
Sydney, for example, the city that I know best, it's not one Sydney. There are so many different experiences that people have depending on where they live and what they have access to. You know, where I grew up, I grew up in Fairfield, Liverpool, Campbelltown, on the other side of the Blue Mountains as well. And there weren't things like art gallery openings or, you know, artist talks at the local bookstore or and if they were there I didn't know about them I wasn't mm. exposed to that stuff and I think we the opportunity isn't distributed evenly in our cities and if we designed our cities to be places that were places of inclusion that wouldn't just be about arts funding it would be about where public transport goes you know how we make housing more affordable which place you know what kind of public space we have kind of programming goes on into the public space you know how libraries function and community facilities so i was already fascinated by cities and and from a sort of ideological and a creative perspective you know i i think that who has access to stages and shop fronts and and stores that stuff is really important in terms of creative production as well as kind of social inclusion so i kind of was saving local government for retirement (laughs) i kind of thought you know what when i'm like a little bit older and i've had a family and i've had got some money somehow that bit i hadn't worked out Mm. I'll, i'll get into local government it's gonna be great and then so it was always like a dream that I had or like an intention. And then in 2016, I got approached by by Clover, by the Lord Mayor. And, you know, I've always just been such an admirer of her. I mean, she's Leola. oh my gosh, yeah. you know, like she's incredibly progressive, really always been way ahead of the curve in terms of what is socially just mm. and what is like actually meaningful and, and brave and bold and principled and just so much integrity and like I've so much respect for her. So I was like, you know, if there was one politician I would want to emulate or learn from, it would be Clover. And then I got this call out of the blue, which was like, Hey, do you want to come and have coffee with Clover? Mm. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you know, she and her advisors had been watching my career and thought that, that I might have an interest in being a part of their team. And, and I did. And so I got the opportunity to run as part of her ticket, Mm. which is basically a collective of independents. Like we all have really kind of shared values, but different perspectives on lots of things. Mm. And we all have a different set of skills. Um, like Robert is a a migration lawyer and Philip is an urban designer and architect and Jess Miller is an incredible environmentalist and activist. And, and, you know, I come from a creative background. So we together have a a set of shared skills, a a set of skills and expertise that are really complementary. So, but of course I didn't know that going in. Yeah. It just, we just got lucky. Great. Just picking up on some of the things you said before about when you were growing up and, you know, talks in the library and all the things. Often when we often when we think about arts or advocacy for arts policy and investment, we tend to target federal government. But it's actually local and state government that have a massive impact on the way that artists live and work and of course how communities engage with the arts, either through public space, in festivals or galleries and other types of cultural spaces. I guess I wanted to unpack the different opportunities that people have to have real impact on a local level and and how that can actually be bigger than us targeting the big guys in Canberra. Absolutely. Mm. 
Local government is the sort of like neglected cousin Mm -hmm. of government Mm -hmm. and so important. You know, actually a huge proportion of library funding and, you know, libraries are one of the remaining non-commercial social and creative spaces that we have. And something like 97% of library funding in New South Wales comes from local government. Wow. Arts funding, a lot of that comes from local government. It's an astonishing percentage. It's obviously different in every local government area, but also make us creative spaces and spaces for performance and rehearsal and all that sort of stuff. That can all be often be managed and provided at a local level. Mm. But there's also no statutory obligation Mm. in New South Wales that I know of for local government to do that. Mm. You know, it tends to – so that means it can fall off the radar. Yeah. Um, And if a a local government is strapped for cash, as many of them are – Sometimes it's the first things to go. Mm. Especially if there's not a voice on the inside saying, hang on a minute. Yeah. And you are competing against other really worthwhile initiatives or or social needs. Mm. Um, And, you know, or there's a focus on it from a sort of participation perspective or a community development perspective, both of which are important, but less of a focus from an excellence perspective or the idea that artists and creatives have are providing a multiple a multiple benefits for yeah. a community. So if you don't have already have a culture in a local government of providing that or you don't have strong advocates from a political level, it's easy for that to be lost. Mm. And I think it's in local communities that you can actually see the benefit of having creative production kept at a local level. Um, and so I think it, sometimes it's easier to make that case locally. Mm. But, yes, we need advocates. Mm. So this year, there are loads of opportunities for people to have impact locally. Queensland is the first of the local government elections on the 28th of March this year. Later in 2020, in New South Wales, it's on the 12th of September. In Victoria, on the 24th of October. In Northern Territory, elections are on the 22nd of August. ACT on the 17th of October. And then Queensland wraps up the election year with their state poll on the 31st of October. It's a huge year. So can you take us through some of the nuts and bolts? How, how do you run for council? Okay, well, first of all, I want to say be in Queensland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's why. Queensland, I don't know if it's different if the, if the other states are up with Queensland, but Queensland is one of the only states that actually pays councillors as a full-time job. Wow. So I'm, you know, in New South Wales we're paid on a sliding scale that's established by the state government that tells you exactly what you're going to get paid and what you can claim for. In Queensland, it is a full-time job. So it's awesome because Mm. you can actually dedicate time to it. Mm. Um, And this is the kind of gig that actually is very much evenings and weekends and it kind of swells up to consume as much of your life as it can. So if you're in Queensland right now, (laughs) drop everything and go and run. There's actually so many great resources in Queensland too to guide you through the process. I would really, really recommend it. So that's an aside. The nuts and bolts are, first of all, um, get a good sense of what what local government does in your area and what matters to the people around you. You know, if you live somewhere, it's possible, it's likely that there are other people like you in that area. So think about who you've got around you, who could be supporters of yours if you're running and who could kind of form your sort of ground troops. Mm. 
one of the things that obviously I benefit from enormously is that Clover's been in local politics for 40 years. So she has this incredible network of people who are really big supporters and volunteers. And so our ground game is strong. Mm. We door knock for months. Mm. Um, And so you really get to know your place when you're out on the street and you are knocking on doors and you get a sense of, oh, the garbage is a problem here or that park Mm. needs love or, Mm. you know, because it's not just what you want to bring and what the issues you want to put on the table are. It's what the community expects and needs. Yeah. Also having a sense of the diversity of your community that is potentially unrepresented. A friend of mine who is in the Southern Highlands, you know, went to, tr- to try and with a whole bunch of people to try and get their local government to declare a climate emergency mm. and said they were sitting in this room where everyone on, on the, the public gallery side was, you know, a, a young, a younger person, a woman, a person from a diverse background, and everyone on the councillors' table was a, a white middle-aged man. And that is, you know, local government is really unrepresentative when it comes to diversity and reality, as I like to call it. And so look at the gaps that are missing mm-hmm. and figure out if you can potentially be that voice of representation in that context. Um, and I think that resonates with other people as well. And then I think think about what the aspirations might be of the people around you because you, if you live in a place, you probably have a good sense of its potential and what's missing or the priorities of the people there and think about how you can articulate that and communicate it because it is, it's really tricky to get cut through and local government elections don't blow up the media. It's hard to get that sort of attention. So think about who is bringing together where are people coming together in your local area it could be facebook groups Mm. it could be a particular place um, or community kind of gathering spot there are just kind of find out where people are at and where they're talking and and go and listen amazing and what's the journey like what should people be prepared for it can be really should i mention that you just pulled a face (laughs) (laughs) you know it's been three and a half like pretty intense years I have to say it can be really it can be a lot people can have really high expectations of of their area and people can also have a really skewed understanding of priorities like because something's really important to them they think it's really important to everyone Mm. and sometimes you can you can experience a kind of, I, I kind of call it this feeling of whiplash where I can go from, you know, chairing, you know, one of the things Clover's done is pull together quarterly meetings in every one of the social housing areas we have in the city. We have lots of social housing areas. So you're working, you know, in those sessions with people who have like really complex needs and who are trying really hard to have them met by Land and Housing Corporation or the police and, you know, are not... It's, it's not they're not dealing with like issues around parking and um you know why is this garden plant bed not beautiful mm. and then sometimes you can you know on the same day be dealing with a community that has uh, a very high expectation of luxury i suppose the or, or you know of their environment being extremely well maintained mm. and one of the things that's extraordinary about it and also kind of challenging about it is you realize how diametrically opposed people's experiences are even when they're like one kilometre apart in mm. the city, mm. you know. And so kind of balancing that and trying to maintain 
a sense of sort of balance between those extremes is, is a big challenge. It's really challenging on your on your family life because it's a big ask and the entire game is designed for retired blokes. Like it is just custom made yeah. for if you're not at the golf club, you're in the local council. And you know what? That is exactly not how we need our decision-making to be managed. So it is a personal sacrifice. There is no doubt about it. But the upside is... You know, I feel incredibly connected to my local community and I feel like um, like I know what's going on. If we can go past a building site and I can kind of go, oh, yeah, that's happening here or, you know, that road is that wide for this reason or the other and it's great. If you're a busybody, it is like (laughs) custom made for you. And I do feel... I do feel like I'm having an impact in some way. And I think we live in this moment where you can feel incredibly powerless and frustrated and, and this is the antidote to that because, Mm. you know, it's like hope with its boots on. You're like just out there, like actually doing something about it. And it can be quite frustrating when it doesn't work out, but it can be incredibly um, empowering when it does. Mm. So, yeah, I think you, you get, you get, have that whiplash. You can feel a bit overwhelmed it can be slow to get down the street sometimes because yeah. people, you know, people start to know you. But then that's awesome because you feel like you know people and sometimes you can feel very disconnected. Totally. So, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty big deal. And, and I'm sure also being Deputy Lord Mayor is a lot of work. So what are, what are some of the highlights? What are the, what, or what's been something that you've achieved or done that's reminded you, yep, this is why I'm doing this? Oh, there's actually been a few things, but for me, affordable space is a really important one and it always has been. I don't need to tell you about how important that is because <laughs> Penelope's got a background in that, right? So Space, I love space. She loves space. And I feel like I've been talking about space for at least 11 years now that it's been like, oh, why isn't there more affordable space? And, mm. you know, we've all been realising that that's shrinking and so one of the one of my proudest achievements is you know last year um, with Philip Thales, who's the the architect on um, our team, we encouraged and and we we got the council to run an alternative housing ideas challenge. Basically, in my view, housing is broken as a model, and you know space generally in terms of property is broken. Basically, it's it's gone from being about shelter and productive use to being entirely about investment. And because of that, it's disconnected from its social purpose and it's become a lockbox of economic value rather than something that can be productively applied to creative production, work, or people having a place to live. So what we did is we went to the world through this competition and said, if you could redesign the model for housing, what would you do? And we got about 240 incredible ideas. It's so like great. Pro- you know, proper proposals back from the world, you know, and through that, the, the staff have picked out seven, which they have then worked with and funded those practitioners to develop up. And hopefully some of them will actually be realized in the city. And so we're talking about things like community land trust, co-housing, which is like, you know, shared space in a, you know, a more sophisticated way, scaling up from a share house, cooperatives and how they can function and being kind of reborn for this era to uh, ways of scaling up and scaling down uh, housing need. So you can stay in a place whether your family expands or contracts or your needs change. So that has been mm. thrilling, being mm. able to feel, you know, we don't need, we, we do need more buildings, 
that, that are going to do this work, but what we need is a whole new model. And so what's really fulfilling for me is, is making interventions in the structures to try and get different models. Um, and then the other thing that has been really exciting has been to help encourage the city to pursue a citizen's jury model. So we've, we're developing our community strategic plan, which is called Sustainable Sydney 2050. Up until now, we've had 2030. Mm. And this is the next iteration of that. And one of the things that I really pushed for was how do we have members of the community come in and like critique or validate the assumptions we're making about their priorities. And we did it through a process which is called a citizen's jury run by the New Democracy Foundation. Basically, you get 50 Sydney siders who are kind of demographically matched with Sydney and they took on 2,500 ideas that had come from the community. They made sense of them and came back and gave us a set of eight priorities that were so much more ambitious than we had even anticipated Mm. so what for example they're calling on us to have a regenerative city rather than just a sustainable city so a city that actually is net positive in terms of its carbon impact rather than you know just net zero and the other thing that was fabulous from that process was creativity was so high on their agenda there were at least two or three priorities that centered sydney as a creative capital and that's not from a group of arts workers, you know, that's the general public. And that's incredibly reassuring and it gives us that social license to keep pushing um, for our council to be more progressive than we are mm. even now. I want to ask you, aside from aside from running for council ourselves, because we've identified it, it is a really big deal, if that's not something that we want to do, how could we... How do we instead make sure that everyone running for local council has a strong and clear sense of what the arts means in their local community? What are the also what are some of the questions that we should be asking our councillor candidates? I think that's such a good question. Um, I think well, first the first thing I'd say is support people who are running because it's a tough gig and we also need to know that we're not kind of like yelling into a void like that there are people out there who who believe that you know at committees last week we had someone come in you know we've got we've declared a climate emergency and we've got a plan for now how our operations match that and we had some community members come in and say yes I support this and it was amazing because mostly you just hear from people who are opposed (laughs) to things so that was really really helpful so Let people know you support their position and that, you know, artists and arts workers are not coming from somewhere else. They are already in the community. So that's the first thing, like letting people know that you're here and that you're paying attention. And then in terms of the questions you would ask, I think asking about creative production and asking, you know, what kind of provision for space is being made for creative production? Does the city have a, or does your local government have a procurement policy that prioritizes local creatives and producers? Do we, do you have a, a policy or approach that's about making sure that artists are properly paid um, and that people are paid in their grants? You know, when they apply for a grant, there's an artist fee. There's an artist fee. So that's one of the things at the City of Sydney that we're really conscious of. And right. you've got to have a budget that includes people working on the thing, getting paid. And quite often, and we also have matching grants, for example, where your labour can be matched, can be the, the part that you're providing, and then we can match it with grant funding. So asking your local government, your local councillors, if they do that, it's a really good way of letting them know that that is what the community, that's a community expectation. 
I think making yourself visible and making yourself informed and making sure that you and everyone in your network knows when council elections are on because they're the easiest one to miss. It's so easy to miss. I'm so glad you have that list. I should like mm. get that. We're going to publish it. We're going to publish it next week. Excellent. Because it's 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 easy to to forget that they're on and they don't get the kind of attention that state and federal ones do. And so you kind of end up with people who kind of go, "Well, I always vote blue or red or green, mm. so I'm going to vote that way." And the number one thing I'd say of course is look out for independents because we don't have the same party machinery or brand recognition, but quite often they're people who are really motivated to mm. make a difference. Mm. And so ask ask independents what they're doing and what they're what their position is on arts and and culture. Great. Some very good advice. Last question, a little big one. More broadly, what do you think should be on the national agenda this year? What's most pressing right now and how can we inform Parliament with artists' passions, concerns and bold expectations? We generally should be on the agenda. Mm. Um, Well, I think a just transition. Mm. And I think a just transition means, you know, how do we move from being an extraction economy to being a knowledge and creative economy? And what is the role that artists and creative producers have to play in that? It's not just about taking coal miners and turning them into, you know, wind farmers. It's there's a lot more to that. And, that, and the role that education and creative services and cultural production can play in that future economy, I think, is the, the voice that we, that, that's the story we should be telling. And that actually, what is the role of the arts and creatives in a low carbon economy? And then where do we have solidarity? Because I think our, I've become recently obsessed I've always been obsessed with the creative economy and now I'm really obsessed with the care economy Mm. and I think there is a real symbiosis there between the work we do as humans to care for each other for each other and the planet and the work we do as humans to create and tell stories and yet there is a sort of a, a gulf between them and so it's not just kind of artist therapy it's about what does the new economy look like that has art, creativity and care at its core, at education and communication at its core. That's We need to articulate a future vision that is something that people feel included in and we're not getting that from anyone. Although I am writing a book about it and it will be out in August. So awesome. I'm on it. Great. But that's what I think Stay we should tuned. be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful way to finish. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.